In case the television and radio ads touting patriotic sales weren't a dead giveaway, today is the 4th of July. So get ready for picnics, parades, fireworks, and a bunch of people in Brooklyn wolfing down hot dogs like they were going out of style. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Later today, Joey Chestnut will look to maintain his title as the world's fastest hot dog eater at the Nathan's Famous Hot Dog Eating Contest on Coney Island. In just a moment, we'll talk with the organizer of that event and get a peek inside the world of competitive eating. Also today, talking about a revolution. We'll explore some of New York City's early history. And later, freedom from the boss. We'll hear how some new college graduates are pursuing entrepreneurship as an alternative to the job hunt. But first this morning, how much do you know about our nation's history? Cityscape's Laura Zifang put some New Yorkers to the test. My name is John Lasota, and I'm from New York. And first question, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. What document is that from? The Declaration of Independence. Yep, correct. First try. Second question, what are the three branches of the United States government? The executive, legislative, and judicial. Perfect. Two for two. Okay, third question. Where is the phrase government of the people, by the people, for the people from? Constitution. Nope. Not right. Try one more time. It's a declaration. Nope. Can I get one more shot? I don't even know. I have no idea. It was from the Gettysburg Address. That's fine. That's a hard (laughs) one. That's terrible. (laughs) I'm Brendan Olin, Riverdale, New York, Bronx, New York. And first question. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. What is that from? It's from the United States Constitution. Nope. Okay. uh, Bill of Rights. Nope. Close, but one more time. Declaration of Independence. Yep, ding, 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 that's correct. Okay, second question. What are the three branches of government? Presidential, judicial, and the Congress. Very close, very close. Presidential, judicial, House of Representatives. Very close. You got the right ideas, just not the exact right words. The Senate. The Supreme Court. It's judicial, legislative, and executive. You had the right ideas, it's not the exact right terms. I'm Nick Macheri, and I'm from Long Island. And first question. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Where is that from? Declaration of Independence. What are the three branches of government? The legislative... (laughs) The legislative... Oh, my God. The judicial and the executive branch. Yep, correct. Very good. Okay, the final question. The Federalist, or the Federalist Papers, was written to, what was its purpose? Well, yeah, Alexander Hamilton. He wrote them. <laughs> he was the Federalist Party leader. He sent them to George Washington. He sent them to George Washington? It's really funny, but I get the same exact answer. The Federalist Papers. The National Bank, federal money, the National Army. Nope. Do you want to get one more try? Okay, the answer is to support the ratification of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, I know, that was a toughie. (laughs) But you guys know the answers now. (laughs) 
If you need a refresher course in American history, Karen Quinones may be able to help. She leads walking tours that concentrate on the Revolutionary War era history of Lower Manhattan. I caught up with her earlier this week. We're standing on the west side of City Hall Park on Broadway um, between Murray and Warren Streets. And to our left, right next to City Hall, is a large pole with a vein on the top that says Liberty. And this is commemoration of New York City's five Liberty Poles, which existed here during the Revolutionary War period. I've walked past this spot, I can't tell you how many times, and I've never noticed that pole. Never. Nobody ever notices it, or they just notice the flag and they think, oh, it's a flagpole, and they don't ever look at it. But if you look at the pole, it has some interesting stuff on it. Besides just the vein on the top that says Liberty, toward the bottom, you see there's some iron around the bottom of the pole as well, which is historically significant, but everybody misses all of it. What's the history behind the Liberty Poles, and why were they such points of conflict between the Patriots and the British? Well, the initial Liberty Pole in New York was put up here in May of 1766 as part of a celebration um, celebrating the repeal of the stamp tax, which had been passed the year before. And you probably know the stamp tax is the thing that finally set the colonists uh, over the top when anger at uh, King George III. Well, eventually the colonies boycotted the tax, and the tax was repealed. When the news got to New York, people were so thrilled. They had a huge party up here. Um, This at that time was the town commons, and they put up the first of our five Liberty Poles in celebration of that. And at the time when they said Liberty Pole, they didn't really mean liberty separate from the king, but they were happy that the king had recognized their liberties to not be what they considered unfairly taxed. I know there was a statue of King George III somewhere around here. Where was that? At the same time, they put up a statue of King George III all the way down at the uh, end of the island at Bowling Green Park. And that statue was taken down, huh? Tell us about that. Yes. In 1776, it was on July 9th, um, General Washington was in New York with the Continental Army. And he brought them all up here to the Commons and had the Declaration of Independence read to them. And uh, the General's view was that so many of these men now were going to die because of the document. They ought to at least have it read to them. Well, after it was read, you know, everybody got really excited, including the Sons of Liberty, who took a few hundred guys straight down the Broadway into the park, where they pulled down the statue of the king. And there's a fence around the park that had crown ornaments on it. They also sawed off all of those ornaments. Um, Eventually, it was all melted for musket balls, Um, and today the fence remains. It's a historic landmark here in New York City. Right below our feet here is a historical marker. The Bridewell. It's New York City's first official jail, and interestingly, although New York City has been here since about 1625, we didn't build a jail until 1775. There wasn't really a need for a big jail. Most uh, punishments for crimes were public humiliations of various types, but eventually they got around to building a jail up here on the Commons, and they named it for the English jail, the Bridewell. They're very happy. They had a big opening celebration and everything. Finally, New York had a jail. When the British occupied New York City, weren't the Patriots kept on ships? Am I right there? It depends. Um, Some of the guys captured in battle, since there wasn't room on Manhattan Island uh, to keep them in jails, they ran out of space, they had decommissioned warships actually in the East River docked on the Brooklyn side. And yes, they would crowd all of those men onto those warships. If we were to close our eyes right now, sort of try to drown out the traffic noise. What did this area look like in the 1770s? Well, it's kind of amazing to try to even think of it, but where we're standing was uh, the beginning of farmland. And if you looked around, you would see a few farms, you'd see a couple inns and taverns. Um, Broadway, or as they called it, the Broadway at this point was just a, um, a dirt path. It hadn't really become a road into the town yet. And you'd see some animals grazing. It'd be very quiet, you know, very pastoral, really quite beautiful. And then take us back to June, July of 1776, what was going on here. 
Well, the town was pretty wild at that point. Um, by that time, the Sons of Liberty were pretty well unleashed. Um, New York had been under good um, crown control for quite a while because the troops in the garrison were located here. When the conflict broke out in Boston, they all went up to reinforce in Boston. So now pretty much the Sons of Liberty were running New York. So it was just a wild time. The Continental Army arrived. They were expecting the British to try to come back and retake New York, which they did with a huge naval armada. But at that time, the town would have been full of uh, American troops, which were anything but soldiers, you know, they're guys who hang out in bars, they're farmers who can't find work, things like that. Spending a lot of time in brothels, they're drinking, they're brawling, and it's really kind of a um, dismal and unpleasant place as they wait for the British to uh, invade the city. When the British did invade the city, I understand the view of the harbor was quite miraculous as far as all of the ships that were there. Yeah, it was actually England's largest naval invasion until World War I, so it's a huge invasion, and they were the primary naval power of the time. And uh, there was a guy in Brooklyn um, who wrote his memoirs, and he said that it looked like a forest of pine masts in the harbor, like you could walk from Brooklyn to New Jersey right across the decks of those ships and uh, not fall in the water. It was so horrifying to the people of New York that more than half the population fled even before the British invasion began. Where did they go? Um, any place they could. Some went to Long Island, some went to New Jersey, some went up along the Hudson River Valley. Any place they had to stay, they left. People did stick around, though, and one person in particular, I guess, was an American captain. His name was Nathan Hale, and he was killed. Nathan Hale was killed. Um, the night the British officially took the city of New York, which would have been Lower Manhattan, was uh, September 21st of 1776. On that night, there was a huge fire that burned in the town. There was a lot of chaos. And a young man named Nathan Hale, who was a captain in one of the Connecticut regiments, um, Connecticut militia, Knowlton's Rangers, um, had offered to spy for General Washington. And when he came across, of course, the British were checking everyone on the ferries. And he was a kid. And he was really nervous. He was acting kind of strange. So they stopped him. He claimed he was a teacher, but when they inspected him, they found he was a commissioned officer, and he was arrested as a spy. And a few days later, he was hanged as a spy. And he's the guy who made the most famous speech at the end. They said, you know, do you have any last words you'd like to say? And he said, my only regret is that I have but one life to give for my country. And even the commander of the British Army, General Sir William Howe, was impressed with this young man's demeanor. How vital was New York City's role during the American Revolution? Well, it's interesting because everybody thought it was key. You know, the British wanted it, Washington wanted it. Everybody thought it would be the key to winning the rebellion. And it turned out not to be worth anything. The British eventually did um, occupy the city for seven years. It was a garrison under full martial law. And it didn't help them because we destroyed them, we beat them. So New York really didn't play out to be as strategically important as everyone thought it would be. What did the British do during their occupation that shocked the city's clergy? And they did a number of things, but the biggest thing they did was um, Trinity Church was completely destroyed in that fire in September of 1776, and there were ruins still there. Well, you know, the British officers lived, uh, what would we say, quite a you know, wild lifestyle. And uh, on that area, they built a park and uh, they had a little fence around it and they had lanterns. They called them pleasure gardens. And uh, that was a place where you could go enjoy time with your wife or maybe your mistress, your girlfriend. And that's what they did was um, even some of the married officers spent time in that park um, with their mistresses. And the clergy were just shocked that they were behaving in this unbelievably disrespectful and immoral um, way right on the grounds of Trinity Church. And one witness said that the benches eventually sunk down so that the legs of the benches we're hitting the top of the caskets in the graveyard. I want to walk down the street okay. to St. Paul's Chapel. A lot of history there as yes. well. Okay, let's go. Okay, Karen, now here we are in the cemetery outside of St. Paul's Chapel, just down the block from where we were. 
Yes, we are. And St. Paul's Chapel is our oldest landmark in lower Manhattan, still standing in its entirety from prior to the Revolutionary War. It was actually built in 1766 by Trinity Church, and they're still a part of Trinity Church today. Wasn't the steeple once the tallest structure in all of New York City? It was, and the original tallest structure was the steeple of Trinity Church, and then after that burned, it was this one. Um, the reason for that is that this was the Church of England. Trinity Church was the Church of England, and since the king was the head of the church and God appointed the king, you couldn't have anything higher than the steeple of the Church of England. So what role did this chapel play during the Revolutionary Era? Well, initially, this was built as Trinity Church's country chapel. And New Yorkers might find that funny because Trinity Church is four short blocks to the south of us. But um, New York's wealthy Anglicans had mansions down by the water, and they had summer homes just a bit to the north of us. So they built this as their country chapel. And they also built it, um, we're out here, actually what people might think is the back of the church because it faces the Hudson River. But this actually is the entrance because people enjoyed coming down the shore road to go to services, so they would come around this way. Now, during the occupation of the city, of course, this was the major church that would have been used by the generals and the admiral and the uh, military commanders and naval commanders who were here because uh, Trinity Church was gone. When New York was turned back over to the Americans, um, our first inaugural service was held here. General Washington uh, was became our president on Wall Street, and the inaugural service was held here. For the first year of the nation, New York was also the capital, and he worshipped here. Now, there are plenty of notables buried here in this cemetery as well, right? Yes, and if you take a look around, you see lots of little flags um, left over from Memorial Day. Most of the guys with these little flags are Revolutionary War veterans. A couple uh, um, had other roles, but most of the guys are veterans. But there are also regular guys in this uh, churchyard, guys who were merchants or newspaper printers. Um, there's a man who was a cutler. He made General Washington's sword. So it really is a good look at just the population of New York at the time. There is a pretty well-known printer buried here. You call him the Liberty Printer. Yes, his name was John Holt, and John Holt's an interesting guy. He started out in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, he traveled to Connecticut, where he was the Postmaster General, and then he wound up in New York with a friend from Connecticut who also was a printer, and they started a newspaper here. Um, they went their separate ways, and during the Revolutionary Era, John Holt's paper was the journal or general advertiser. Well, John Holt had a very good friend in Boston by the name of Sam Adams, and when all the trouble began in Boston, in solidarity with them, John Holt took the king's arms off of the masthead of his paper and replaced it with the symbol that's so popular today, um, the Unite or Die, the chopped up rattlesnake drawn by Ben Franklin. Very seditious symbol at the time. Karen, you've been doing this for a while. What are some of the most common questions you get from people on your tours? Was the war fought in New York? Yes, it was. Um, one of the most significant battles of the war occurred in New York, actually in Brooklyn. Uh, people today call it the Battle of Brooklyn. It's really the Battle of Long Island, but it occurred in Brooklyn Heights. Um, there was a battle around 26th Street at Kipps Bay. Of course, there was a battle up at where Hamilton Heights is today. There were The battles went right through the island of Manhattan, so people are really surprised to hear that. They're also surprised to hear that this was the garrison, that this is really where all of the king's troops were located long before the Revolutionary War, and they're surprised that the British actually occupied occupied New York for seven long years. What was the one thing that surprised you most in doing your research of New York City's revolutionary history? The thing that surprised me the most, actually, is a um, contemporary of John Holtz, another printer by the name of James Rivington, who um, the guys in the Sons of Liberty actually hated him. Um, during the occupation of the city, he uh, published the King's Propaganda in Rivington's Royalist Gazette, and it winds out that he's actually spying for General Washington once you read through his entire life. So it's really quite amusing because as you read about him, you really hate him, you read his article, you really can't stand him, and then you find out he's really kind of a double agent. Karen, thanks so much for the tour. You're welcome.
Karen Quinones leads Revolutionary War-era walking tours of Lower Manhattan. If you'd like to get in on one, check out PatriotToursNYC.com. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. The Super Bowl of competitive eating takes place today on Coney Island. Nathan's famous hot dog eating contest is set to get underway at noon. Reigning champion Joey Chestnut of California will try to hold on to his title. George Shea is with Major League Eating, the sports franchise that oversees the event. Major League Eating runs about uh, 70, 70 70-plus events each year, both nationally and internationally. And we are the professional eating league and all of the top eaters, whether it's Kobayashi or Chestnut or who, uh, they're all major league eaters. And I think that it really is a reflection on the growth of the sport recently. There really is a need for such a league. Now, of course, the Super Bowl of competitive eating games is this afternoon on Coney Island. Well, this is the big one. This is the granddaddy of them all. You've got uh, uh, the Nathan's Famous Fourth of July International Hot Dog Eating Contest. Takiro Kobayashi of Japan. We have a, uh, a Franco. He only goes by one name of Italy. You've got Joey Chestnut, the returning champion. Eater X, a man of mystery, a masked eater um, who ate 50 hot dogs and buns to qualify. So you've got really the top echelon of all eaters in the world competing here today. And this really goes down as the world champion. When, you, when you've won this contest, you are referred to as the world champion. Now, Chestnut holds the title right now, right? Joey Chestnut? Joey Chestnut has beaten Takiro Kobayashi two years running, but by the thinnest of margins. Kobayashi won for the first time in 2001, and he won six years straight thereafter. Joey Chestnut knocked him off the throne two years ago and last year defended his title successfully. But by they, they ended in regulation at a dead tie, and it was only after OT that they were uh, able to determine who won, and it was Joey. How many hot dogs were there eaten on that day? In regulation, 10 minutes, 59 hot dogs and buns eaten by both Chestnut and Kobayashi, a dead tie. And then in a five-dog eat-off... Joey Chestnut beat Kobayashi by about 8 to 10 seconds, and he went away with the coveted mustard yellow belt. And it was dramatic beyond any description. The crowd of uh, nearly 30,000 was just apoplectic. What's the history of this hot dog eating contest on Coney Island? Well, you know, I've been doing it for for 22 years. Prior to that, Max Rosie did it, um, uh, you know, beginning in 1972. And prior to that, um, I really only have archival information, most of which was which was verbally delivered to me by Max. But it's been run, according to him, since 1916 each year on the 4th of July. And in fact, the first year, uh, it sort of was much less organized. It was a contest generated by an Irish immigrant, Jim Mullen, who who competed against three of his friends, also, you know, immigrants, to determine who was the most American. If they, whoever could eat the most hot dogs, the most American of foods, was obviously the most American. And this is, this is what they did. I believe Mullen ate 13 hot dogs and buns in 12 minutes, or perhaps it was 10, right? Um, that, that's what we, were, we have learned. But not enough to even get into the finals these days. Mullen would not uh, come anywhere close to qualifying for the 4th of July these days. What's changed there? Why do you think people are eating more hot dogs these days? Well, you know, they've really studied the sport. They've studied the process. They dunk 
and crunch. They separate the hot dogs and buns. They break them in half. They do all kinds of methods. And I think that psychologically, when Kobayashi came around in 850, you know, as he did in 2001, it just told people, you know, I can eat more than 20 hot dogs. You know, it's doable. And that's what happens. Once it's doable psychologically, it's doable physically. How important is it to have well-oiled jaw muscles for this competition? To me, it is the most important element because you have a situation where the regular normal person who would never even consider jaw strength, it never once comes up in their mind. When you get to eating straight like that for four, five, six minutes, you know, the normal person would absolutely, they'd be going, oh, my Lord, and they would not be able to continue, just have this weird fatigue. The eaters practice that. They chew lots of gum. They chew frozen Tootsie Rolls, and they get their jaw ready. The jaw is everything. Kobayashi didn't win these past couple of years, but no question, he is a fierce eater. And that surprises me because he's a very thin guy. Do thin guys and gals have an advantage over overweight people? Because I would think it would be the other way around. This is the interesting thing, right? Psychologically, in your brain, intuitively, you're thinking big, huge, Bluto-type character is going to be the competitive eater. And indeed, in the past, that's what it was. In the the 80s and 90s, uh, that's what it was. But recently, you know, especially with the introduction of more television, more media fame, more money, you've found that the athletic eater is the one to win and the one who sort of has that character that the ability to focus and and really you know push through to to victory that's the the eater who wins and the and the big guy the the heavy set guy is just not really in the position to win anymore I've read that thin guys have stomachs that are more expandable. Is there any truth to that? Well, you know, this is something that we've explored with um, a a scientific paper. Um, We literally uh, investigated this and wrote a paper. We submitted it to the New England Journal of Medicine, and we were it it was rejected for publication. Uh, But that was their loss because it turns out to have uh, been true. It what we studied was referred to as the belt of fat theory, and the idea is that if you have an enormous fat stomach, that adipose tissue, that belt of fat restricts the expansion of your stomach. And if you're thinner, you're actually in a better position to eat competitively. I know that some competitive eaters do train. For instance, they'll drink lots of water. I believe that Joey Chestnut drinks a whole jug of milk in one sitting to get his stomach used to expanding. Is that something that your organization condones? Uh, Absolutely not. You know, in fact, we have specifically and adamantly urged uh, our eaters not to train, not to train at home, uh, not to compete anywhere or to eat for speed anywhere when there is not an, uh, you know, a licensed emergency medical technician present. And in fact, when we um, do events, certainly an eating contest, but even a media appearance at a radio station or television show, none of our eaters will ever eat for speed, as it were, without an emergency medical technician present. How do you deal with a choking hazard when people are eating so quickly? You know, we have never had an incident of that sort. You know, that would certainly be a worry. But, uh, you know, that is why we have uh, an EMT present, because you you not only are acting responsibly, you're, you're, you're increasing the safety for these eaters. How do you answer the critics, though, doctors who say that competitive eating is dangerous, that it could lead to obesity, diabetes, other health problems? Well, you know, I'm not a doctor, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of this commentary, and there's not as much as you'd think, is a knee-jerk reaction. You know, there they, they are some very legitimate issues facing our country and our, our world. Obesity clearly is one. Hunger is another. Um, you know, and 
um, there's this kind of like, I think, an almost human need to uh, point out blame. And people will say, oh, competitive eating, you know, there's obesity. But it's actually an absurd association because, in fact, the eaters who um, engage in our sport are not by any stretch obese. And the number of eaters doing this is in the hundreds. And we have a nation of 300 million people. So to somehow suggest that competitive eating is either the cause or will lead to an obesity crisis is silly. And I think that, and, and this is why you don't hear it as much as you might, because people, you know, the media and the people that, you know, hear this complaint kind of go, okay, well, that's, that's great, but it's, it, it can't be true. Why do you think it is that people get into competitive eating? Lots of reasons, right? They're competitive by nature. There's money involved. There is fame. You know, I think there is no thrill like the thrill of being in front of thousands of fans and hundreds and hundreds of media and sort of being involved in something that is recognized by the entire nation. It's the feedback, the positive feedback is enormous. And I think that that really drives these guys. Like anything else, you know, a lot of people, you know, you say, why is someone uh, a major league basketball player? Well, A, it's a great job, right? And B, you make tons of money. But if, if you were a psychiatrist and you delved into this, I suggest that it's that positive feedback that you get for being a winner um, in front of the whole nation or world. That's what drives these people. George Shea. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. George Shea is with Major League Eating. The sports franchise oversees competitive eating events worldwide, including Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest on Coney Island. Hot dog, life is tasting pretty good. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hot dog, cause you love me like you should. Finally today, a look at how some recent college graduates are seeking independence from the job market. Cityscape's Nick Thibodeau reports on some grads' pursuit of entrepreneurship. When you're fresh out of college, you've got a mountain of student debt and not much experience in the workforce, it might not seem like the best time to take risks. Even so, hundreds of college students recently gathered on the USS Intrepid in a New York City harbor for a different kind of career fair. Welcome, everybody. Have a great time. You're in the right place at the right time. and make the best of this weekend for you. It's the Kairos Summit, a meeting of budding entrepreneurs from colleges all around the country. Rows upon rows of students stand in front of poster boards, eagerly pitching their ideas to their peers and jostling one another for a view of the more interesting inventions. While they all had different stories, they seemed to share a starry-eyed optimism that despite the economic climate, the American dream was still within reach. Katie Shea and Susan Levitt are two young entrepreneurs from New York University. A pair of self-described social butterflies, Levitt says they needed a more effective way to move between formal events and low-key social gatherings. We were walking around the city, and we also noticed a lot of other women walking around the city in high heels. And I don't know if you're aware with how high heels can, you know, give a lot of discomfort to your feet, but basically we noticed this, and it was a huge problem. Shea opened up a small bag to show what looked like a normal flat. Is a split sole shoe, and essentially what that means is that instead of having one um, long sole on the bottom, we split it in half. The bottom of the shoe has a spot to put a detachable high heel. The owner can stick the heels on for a high-profile job interview, then pull them off and be ready to dance the night away. Shea and Levitt say they've put all their savings into starting their company, called City Souls, but they don't seem nervous about the future. I think this is a perfect time for entrepreneurship, and especially at the student level. Um, one of the things we've been able to do, like we said, is use all the resources that 
we've been given as students. You know, you have your accounting professor, you have your business law professor, and all these people, we go up to them every day and they love the fact that we're so passionate about our idea and they want to help. While Shea and Levitt were working on what to put on their feet, the University of Pennsylvania's Jonathan Hefter had his mind in the clouds, cloud-based computing, that is. He's the co-founder of a company called Nightburst that aims to let users access a powerful computer from wherever they are. As Hefter pulls out a laptop to show what he does, he says the goal of the business is to remotely harness computing power to let users access their files from anywhere. Because everybody is working together to share those resources, you get a computing experience that's far superior to what you've used before for far less than you're currently paying. Like Shea and Levitt, Hefter believes that his college gave him a great advantage in starting out, but he jokes that he never let classes get in the way of his business. He's got a student partner who specializes in the technical and management side, and he's managing other workers below him. Hefter doesn't think there's any real secret to success as a student entrepreneur. To some degree, some people just have it. It's, it's a combination of creativity, risk-taking, and the ability to um, look like a complete idiot until you can actually show people that you know what you're doing. While it may seem like a stretch to think that students coming out of college will make it on their first try, economist Michael Levert thinks they could have a shot. Levert watches economic trends in the Northeast and says the biggest challenge is probably getting capital for a startup. There are many banks that are still lending, and if you have a good, good idea, and a good business plan and you're organized, I think that the opportunities are still there. Levert says he expects the recession to get better in about a year. Until then, entrepreneurs coming out of college face a unique set of challenges, whether they choose to sell shoes, software, or any other idea. For Cityscape, I'm Nick Thibodeau. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. My thanks to producers Mary Wilson, Ellen Burke, and Laura Zifang. Have a great 4th of July.